Welcome to episode 287 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I am Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're deep in sin. We are. It's true. <laughs> both Full literally stop. and figuratively. We should yes. just put that out there. We mean it in both ways. So we're going through this whole kind of se- like a mini series almost. Again, we, we're going to do a couple episodes, four episodes, I think, in total of kind of these different facets to try and turn over, understand sin, appreciate sin if there is such a thing, at least in ways of trying to discern how this impacts our theology, but then, of course, our appreciation and doxology for what God has done for us. But it's just fair to say from the outset, we're deep in sin. So we're continuing in that, and we're going to talk about the fall today on this particular episode. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I had an opportunity to preach um, last Lord's Day, which was Palm Sunday, and I was talking about the, the way that John tries to describe the crowd and tries to communicate how large it is. And he, in, in the Greek, it's literally many crowds. So I made yes. the point that uh, whatever you think a crowd is, it's many of those. And th- this series, whatever you think a series is, it's many of those. So we're doing this ongoing, <laughs> uh, ongoing many, many, many serieses. That was tough to say. Uh, nice. This ongoing series, uh, which is many series, uh, in systematic theology. And so we've come to the discipline of Harmark theology, which is just a fancy $10 word to say the doctrine of sin or the study of sin. And yes, we're going to talk about the actual concrete historical reality of the fall today. So I'm, I'm, I wish I could say I was excited, but it's always kind of a bummer thing to talk about. But I think there's some good takeaways and some good, some good discussion points to be had. And here's where like the Reformed tradition stands a little bit on its own. And that is, it's, as we talked about a little bit before, it's like unapologetically pragmatic with sin, that this is like the true starting point. And even yeah. as bad as you might be able to conceive or imagine it, it's far worse than that. This doesn't in any way take away from, in fact, I think it, it elevates or at least yeah. accentuates or in some ways, like it can draw to some wonderful juxtaposition to all the work of God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. All that is there. And it's in there in relief as we look, of course, to the really sinful state of man. So I'm with you to say like you're stoked about it, like makes you sound like a weird person. Yeah. But like this is exactly to know. In other words, like you can't be rescued if there isn't actually something like a legitimate that is a life threatening, that is soul crushing that to be rescued from, right? Yeah. So like, why talk about, again, this, I always say, like when people are talking about like Jesus is the answer, somebody rightly ought, ought to say, well, what the heck is the question? Yeah. And we just don't have a good question for most of the time. It's, it's just kind of like, no, nah, Jesus, like you want Jesus. And, you know, much of the world is like, why? Yeah. Yeah. Little illustration, I think that, that demonstrates why it is that the Reformed tradition speaks so much about sin and, and why getting sin right is a big deal. Like we talked about last week when I was maybe, I think it was maybe 18 or 19, somewhere in there, I had my first car and I was on my way to a play uh, with a girl I was dating. And then I had a friend who was sitting in the backseat who was coming to the play with us. And um, I missed a stop sign and got hit on the front passenger quarter panel. So like right above the wheel, right in front of where my passenger was sitting. And it was in the evening. And so like when that happens, adrenaline kicks in. You're not, you're thinking like super clearly in some ways and then not clearly in other ways. Right. And so I remember getting home that evening and thinking, yeah, I mean, everybody's okay. Of course, everybody's okay. It was a pretty minor accident. And then I woke up in the morning after the adrenaline had died down and I slept and I saw the the remains of the car, which had been towed to my home. I walked out and I saw the remains of the car in the morning and it was totaled. It was just trashed. The wheel was like falling off. The doors were totally collapsed in. Um, it really is. Um, and I don't say this lightly. I, I really think it was kind of a miracle. I think there was a special act of preservation on God's part um, to protect us from more serious injury. Um, we can get into that story another time, but seeing in the light of day, the sort of the wreckage of that vehicle just gave me an even greater gratitude and an even greater understanding of how remarkable it was that I, I, and my two passengers had been saved from injury or death in that accident. 
And I think talking about not just sin in a sort of abstract sense, which is what we did last week, kind of the nature of sin, and not just talking about like sin as it affects us now, which is we're going to talk about that next week and the following week, but sin as it started, the beginning of sin and the nature of the beginning of sin. I think talking about that really helps to emphasize and highlight the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm, I'm glad we're taking this time to really dig into it and, and spend a couple episodes to really kind of kind of like get it out there and, and take it out and look at the wreckage that Adam and Eve's sin have, has wrought, not just in their immediate context, but also kind of upon their descendants and the, the whole world, really. Right on. So what you're saying is like, we need to drive by, slow down, take a real good look at it yeah, and understand what it means. Like taking all of its ugliness, understand that it's ugly then, it's ugly now. Yeah. And that again, this makes all the more the work of Christ so amazingly glorious that he yeah. might save us, redeem us from this, purchase it, buy us back. It's incredible. So before we get to that real quick, we should say for those who are regular listeners, we're forgoing your regularly scheduled affirmations and denials. We want to bring up just one thing in particular, because we want to give you a challenge, something to join us with. And that is we're trying this weird, fun, super amazing experiment. We're basically inviting everybody who's listening. And that means you, whoever you are, to join what's called Telegram. Telegram is a messaging app. And we have basically like a giant group chat that's loved ones, brothers and sisters that are listening and come be a part of it. Like it's unscripted. There is no particular agenda. And even if you like you want to be a wallflower and just like see what people are talking about there, I would love for you to come and do that. So Tony, how do people who are listening right now, which is anybody with ears who can hear and is able to get this app on their phone, how would they join into this, even if they just want to hang out? Yeah, you can go to, uh, you can point any browser, because Telegram works on your computer or on your phone, you can point any browser to the letter t.me, so t.me slash reformed brotherhood. And if you don't have Telegram, it should get you right to a place that gives you instructions how to download it and get set up with an account. You don't need to start like a special username. You can just register with your phone number. Um, and then uh, if you do have it, it should jump you right in the channel. Uh, we do have an option for a, uh, sorry, in the group, we do have an option for a channel, which is just broadcast only. Um, I'm not really doing anything with that because there was no interest. But if you're interested and I see people start joining that, I can start updating that. And that's just t.me slash love the brotherhood. And that's just one directional kind of an announcement stuff. Style thing. The other cool thing that's going on, we had a we had a, um, a gracious brother in the chat who wanted to also join the experiment, but then also expand the experiment. And he has volunteered. His name is Vincent. He's volunteered to help get a clubhouse group up and running to have a live uh, audible like audio discussion of the episodes each week. So if you jump in the Telegram channel, you'll be able to find information about this clubhouse group, which is another like an app where people can do like. Like it's a clubhouse. You just jump in, you do conversations. When people are done, you jump out. So check it out. T.me slash reform brotherhood. Um, we're building a good group. We're having really great conversations. We had a great conversation about the, the name of the Lord last week. Um, we're talking about, um, we had a conversation that involved Christology and the second commandment and images of Christ. Um, I think yesterday, the day before. So it's, it's great. It's just a place to hang out and chat about theology in a, in a way that's not driven by the rage machine, like Facebook or Twitter or something like that. No shade if you're still part of those groups, but it's just not something I'm interested in, but yeah, check it out. It's great. It's very different, right? This is like, if you want to get a kind of a, almost like as organic, organic as possible experience yeah. Yeah. with being online and, and just kind of, and let me say it this way. Like if you are feeling compelled that you just like to meet other brothers and sisters in Christ who by definition, because if they're listening to this conversation are probably like-minded unless they really dislike us and they're yeah. still trying to infiltrate these places, you're going to find, I think some interesting people at least to yeah. interact with like across the globe. We, we did this, like somebody put forward like a little bit of a, uh, actually maybe it was you, but it was encouraged by somebody else. Just a quick poll on time zones. And what we discovered is that there's people all over the globe yeah. that are really joining into listening and processing with us. And again, wanting to just grow deeper into Jesus yeah. Christ by way of Reformed theology. It's not a study onto itself, but one that we're endeavoring it would lead us into greater worship, yeah. more intense doxology, and more love for neighbor. And this is a fun little extension of that thing. So I would encourage you, even if you think like, I've never done this before, that kind of person. I don't know if I have anything to contribute. That's okay. Come hang out and stalk yeah. everybody. See what the conversation is like and just have a good time. Yeah. And two thoughts. One, if you are nostalgic for like the days of like AOL chat rooms, this is kind of like that. It's it's a sort of a callback True. to that style. Or like if you used to be part of like the AOL, uh, 
uh, Alpha and Omega IRC channel or something along those lines. It's a similar kind of a, a dynamic and feel. It's just real-time conversation. Um, and the second thing is, if you're one of those people that's listening to the show and some, for some reason doesn't like us, um, we're fine with that too. Like We welcome everyone in the group as long as you're not being uh, like a tool and mean and rude. Um, we're happy to have you there, happy to answer hard questions and to have discussions. Um, it is a place where we're, you know, we're, we're a community of reformed Christians. And so if you're working intentionally to try to disrupt that, then we may not like that too much. We may ask you to find somewhere else to do that. But um, if you want to come in and just have good conversations and ask good questions and be seeking good answers, then we're happy to have all sorts of people join that group. Right on. So enough of that. You're all reasonable people. Go check that out for yourselves. But let's get on to, I wanted to say the good stuff, but in some ways it's the bad stuff that leads us into this wonderful good stuff. And so I've been endeavoring, like, as we've introduced each of these topics in this particular vein to like give some interesting facts or what I think are interesting facts. So this particular week I went to Logos Bible Software, which again, everybody should check out. And just did this quick and simple search in the NASB translation of the scriptures for the word sin. And I found that it appears 752 times. But here's the thing. I wasn't just interested in its absolute value. That is that actual total, but relative to other things. And here's what I found is that sin actually appears 42% more often in scripture than the word love. So even here, we have this sense that God is trying to orient from the very beginning how we understand. And of course, he gives us through Genesis and the writings of Moses, this very profound, intimate, and clear, cogent understanding of the beginning of sin. And that's exactly where we find ourselves in this episode today. So where do you want to begin in the beginning? Well, I want to begin first by just saying, if you are interested in Logos, you still can make use of our affiliate uh, login, uh, which does give the show a little bit of assistance. You can go to logos.com slash Reform Brotherhood. Uh, you can still get a, a discount on a package and some free uh, eBooks if that's something that piques your interest. If you want to math nerd out like Jesse just did, which is totally, not only is it acceptable, it's encouraged here. Uh, Reform Brotherhood, or sorry, logos.com slash Reform Brotherhood. Uh, but I think the best place to start for us is just to read the account. So I'm going to read. Do it. Uh, I'm just going to read the whole of chapter three because all of it's important and all of it's God's word. So starting in verse one, now the serpent, this is out of the ESV, uh, no particular reason. That's just what I have. Uh, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that what you eat of it, your eye, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat. And all the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, but you have listened to the voice because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So I know that's a lot and we'll we'll break down the text as we go, but it's important to sort of see the entire chapter as it unfolds because each piece kind of builds on the next, right? It starts off notably the woman is there and Adam is absent. Adam doesn't right. seem to be involved in this conversation with the serpent. Now we can debate and go back and forth and lots and lots of scholars have given lots of good reasons. You know, is Adam standing right next to her and just wasn't doing anything? Was he off doing something else? He came back. We, we don't really know for sure. But the, the fact is Adam wasn't there. He wasn't involved in, in this situation until the end of it when it was already too late to do anything about it, right? So so we'll go through the text, but you kind of have to see the whole scope of it uh, in front of you to be able to sort of like slot the different pieces into it. I like that. I'm glad that you read the whole thing because I would say like in, just in terms of like the outline, what we see is like just, so when Jesus talks about Satan coming to, to as a liar to steal and destroy and to kill, here we see that like from the very beginning, like very obviously, but only obvious, almost ex post. So really, in my estimation, like this is really dark, ominous event. I'm not sure that we give it that kind of weight. You know, right. of course, it's like in the realm of, of the way in which we understand like the beginning of all mankind. And when we unpack the scriptures and we're going through Genesis, we get to this point, we pause to say, you know, here is really the first fall and yeah. the place in which that set forward for us, like all the, all this course of events. It was the first domino, so to speak, with respect to sin. But what I hear, just even having you read that out loud, is that here we have, like, it just struck me, the first lie ever to occur in human history, right? Yeah. Like, you will not surely die. And that's always the promise of sin. So, like, as just a general outline of this passage, we have, like, these promises that are being made that sin invokes, but that never deliver. So sin is going to always promise life and life more richly and pleasantly than one could ever imagine. And then you have this really second lie right in the heels. Like your eyes are going to be opened. And isn't it ironic that sin does the exact opposite thing? That's yeah. why Paul talks about like the God of this world being Satan and he's blinded the eyes of unbelievers like Adventures in Romans 1 style or 1 Corinthians 4. And then on the heels of even those two things, this massive lie, which everybody wants to believe inside, and that is that you shall be like God. Right. Like more than anything else, this entrance of sin into human history began with the desire for autonomy. But this is like an actual account, right? Like sometimes I yeah. think, like you said to begin with, we have this sense that we're talking about intellectual ideas. And so, you know, whether it's Socrates, or Aristotle, we talk about sin. Is it in the nature? Is it in the will? It doesn't matter with respect to what we're talking about here, because here we have humankind being faced with a choice, being faced with whether or not to believe who God is and what he said is true or whether to believe a lie, actually three lies or thrice lies, these three sets here. And this is the precursor for everything. Yeah, I, I like that you pointed out that this is like an actual event, because I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we think this way. But most people, I think, even even Reformed Christians who have kind of a cognitive commitment to this being real, true historical history, not, not, not history and like, oh yeah, well this is like history, but like actual, <laughs> this happened history for a lot of reasons. I think we all still think about this. Like it starts with the phrase once upon a time, right? Some of yes. that is like the effects of German liberalism and like higher critical thinking in the, in the academy and how that's worked its way into the church, postmodernism. I think most of all, <laughs> it's because we grew up, those of us who grew up in the church, um, and even those of us who didn't grow up in the church, like myself, we grew up with like Veggie Tales accounts of these stories. We grew up with like picture book stories of the fall. And like, there's this nice picture of Eve and her hair comes down over her chest and Adam's like got a bush that's like strategically positioned. So there's no naughty bits <laughs> showing and like this pretty little snake just chatting with the two of them. But like, right. this is an actual really real historical event that rendered death and destruction onto the rest of humanity and all of the cosmos for at this point now, 
we're talking eight to 10,000 years of death and destruction. And we don't know how much longer it's going to go before Christ puts all things right. So I think the first thing that we have to really establish, and this goes back to that, that what we're talking about throughout, I mean, I suppose this probably is going to end up being the sort of the theme of the, of the um, little mini series here, this, the harmatology series, taking sin seriously, right? And to take sin seriously is to take the fact that this is a real account that really happened and what that means to take that seriously too. So I'm glad that we sort of started there to say like, this actually happened. There actually was a snake. Well, again, commentators, was Satan taking the form of a snake? Satan actually is a snake. Satan was possessed the snake. We don't know for sure exactly how this, how this went down. What we know is that there was a real snake that this really happened and that Satan either was or used the snake to, to entice the humans, the first man and the first woman to disobey and to abandon their commitment to God kind of inexplicably. There's really no good reason. It's, it's kind of like the first irrational act in all of, all of reality. There's no reason why this should have happened. We talked about this when we talked about um, kind of pre-fall anthropology. Adam and Eve had everything they needed to be able to obey. They knew the they knew the law. They knew the truth. They were created in righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. Like we kind of sometimes think, like, well, Eve must have just been dumb. Like she must have just not known. I, I actually, I, and I've I've said this before, probably on this show, I've said this before, that the first mistake that Eve makes is that she repeats that she repeats the command wrong. But if we actually believe what we said when we say they were created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. She actually probably didn't. So whether right. this is is a an appropriate explanation of the the command that God gave, like an like an exposition of the command that God gave, or whether God actually had given the command multiple times in multiple ways, there's there's nothing precluding that. We don't have a record of it, but there's no reason to think he couldn't have added to or clarified later on, or that it was implicit in the statement that you don't even touch the fruit. I, I'm coming to believe we shouldn't think that like Eve was misremembering or was misquoting right. this. Sometimes it's painted like Adam taught her wrong. And and that's another element of this that I, I want to just touch on. And then I'm sure we'll come back to it. Everything leading up to the fall, although we, um, we might acknowledge that there are certain things that happened leading up to the actual fall itself that we would consider sinful on kind of on this side of the fall. We can't really acknowledge that it was sin prior to the fall because the the actual sin was eating the forbidden fruit. And right. when we will get to a point in um, this series, when we talk about the law, when we talk about what that means and how it applies, and we can talk about it a little bit more, but the fact of the matter is that in the garden, the only actual explicit law, like we said, sin always comes in the context of covenant breaking. So the covenant that was made with Adam was not a general covenant to the to the covenant of uh, to the the uh, moral law. Adam was obligated to the moral law, but it wasn't he wasn't covenantally obligated in the same way he was covenanted when God said, "Don't eat this fruit or you'll die." That's a covenant. Right. It's got a, a blessing, a, sh- a sanction and its stipulations. That's a covenant. Right. So we shouldn't think of the fact that Adam wasn't present, even though it's a boneheaded thing to do. Right. He had an obligation to protect his wife, to protect the garden. That was part of his task that he was given by God. We shouldn't think of that as sin. Let's say that Eve was misquoting the scripture. Well, us misquoting the scripture, we would say is a sin or, or God's word. We would say is a sin, but we can't or shouldn't necessarily think of that in the same category of sinfulness um, if we think of it as sin at all. Because uh, our confessional standards, and I think because they're biblical, this is what the Bible teaches, the eating of the forbidden fruit by Adam specifically, but both persons, was the first sin. Right. So we have to be, I think we have to be careful with that because if we if we don't land that, if we don't get that point straight, then we lose the sight of the fact that this is a covenantal arrangement. It's not that there was something intrinsically evil about this fruit. We actually have good reasons right. and we'll talk about it. I think we'll talk about it throughout the rest of the series. We have good reason to think that actually the plan may have been for Adam and Eve to eventually eat this fruit, but it was to to participate in that if that was the plan on God's timing and in God's terms, not on right their on. own terms. And I think that's that's the fundamental issue here is that the covenant God made with them was do this and live. Don't eat the fruit and live. Eat the fruit and die. That's not to say that there couldn't have been some new covenant made later or some eschatological movement towards a, a, an endpoint where maybe this was part of the plan later. That's a little bit speculative, but the eating of the forbidden fruit in violation of God's explicit covenantal command, that's the key part. It's a violation of God's explicit covenantal command. 
that was the first sin, and that's what plunged humanity into ruin. Right. Let's get into that fruit a little bit, because I, I like what you're saying there. Because sometimes you get this critique that like somebody will say something to the effect of, what was wrong with the fruit? And what we're saying is like nothing per se. Yeah. It's just that God established essentially these rules. And I think this is what gives like the, the account as like an actual historical event, like a bad right. rap. Because people will be like, well, it sounds fairy tale-ish, which, right. which one might argue, well, all stories essentially originate from the greatest story ever told, which is right. Jesus Christ, like God's redemption of all hum- humanity. So setting that aside, which is a big thing to do, it's just funny to me that we talk about this idea of like, well, it just seems childish. Well, here's the bottom line. What God is after there is a testing of obedience, like in this probationary period. Right. So the fact that it might be manifest in the most simple thing is actually a greater condemnation on humanity, right. right? Right. Like it's like God's not giving you like complex situations in which like you have to weigh out ethical and moral quandaries and somehow come to terms with all the parties involved and who's going to be wrong and who's not. What he just asks of them is says, don't eat this fruit. That's right. all you have to do. Don't eat this fruit. So it's like the simplest test that we ourselves, everybody, no matter who you are, can completely fail. So like yeah. the basic idea I would say that one gathers from like this construction, everything you just read, everything you just said, is that like the serpent was distinctly prudent. He was wise, he was crafty right. when compared to the other animals of the field. So it's not a mistake, I don't think, that like Moses points this out and he begins to record this fateful history of a man's tragic fall into sin. And the point is that from the beginning of the story of sin, deceit occupies a prominent place. Yeah. That there is this trying to seduce that, you know, the, the Eve, and then I would say like Adam by extension and the context of the serpent's craftiness clearly points to the craftiness with words that were used to exercise deceit with the woman as Satan seduced her to take part of the forbidden fruit. So it's, it is, this is like a cosmic battle. I mean, literally, right. Represented in a very simple ask, which was, and I would say it this way, if we can't be obedient in the most simple of tasks, like at this low end, at the smallest point, then how can we be expected to be, you know, more yeah. obedient with complex tax? But I would say, like the in our culture, we like to reverse engineer that and say, like, no, 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 they were simple people. I can do much better now, even with all the the complex things in the chaos in my own life. It's just not true. I yeah. think that is why God gives us like a clear window, and He doesn't just say, like, listen, man fell, they jacked it up. It was very unfortunate. Trust me, we had an agreement. But he brings us and invites us into this account, this historical account, by which there are simple means to demonstrate behind that very complex things, as if to say, you just can't get the simple things right. Like, this is the heart of man, that he would be desperately wicked, and so therefore would rebel against God, even in the most simple things. And I think to your point, it's not about fruit, it's not, it's not about like the apple, and more likely, of course, like a fig or something else. It's not what that represents. It's not that the fruit was poisonous. It's not that like it was bad or not tasty. In fact, of course, yeah. we have all the opposite. It was that God said no. And this is like, from that day forward, now I'm on a soapbox, from that day and all <laughs> the days forward, isn't that what we fight against with God? Yeah. That God knows better. That God says, not right now or not this thing. And we say, no, no, no. I know what I need and what I want. I want it now or I want this thing no matter what you say. Here, I find in my own heart, like complete resonance with how yeah. this all starts. Yeah, that, I think that's a really key point. And I want to be careful how I say this because some people might think I'm becoming like a federal vision advocate if they're studied up on this, this issue. How dare they? The fundamental issue, the fundamental sin that's going on here is a lack of faith in God. Right mm. now, the reason I say to be careful with that because because the federal vision advocate wants to say that like the pre-fall covenant of works wasn't really a covenant of works, and that Adam right. was actually saved by faith and not by works, and that and that's we don't want to go there. That's not accurate. That the pre-fall covenant was a covenant of works. We don't need to run through that again. We've done full episodes on that, and we'll do episodes on it again. But the fundamental maybe the root cause of the sin, the outward sin, right? Because all sin starts internally and then works itself out. I suppose it doesn't always work itself out, but it starts internally and then works itself out into actual outward action. The The fundamental issue in Eve's heart from what we see in the text is not so much like a, a wanton desire to like rebel against God. It's not like she hated God, at least not in like an outward, I hate God and I don't want to be his kind of sense. It was that she she didn't trust what God had to say, right? right? Let's just assume she got it right. She understood the command. She knew it. I think we are on good biblical biblical grounds and confessional grounds to say she knew what was expected of her. She knew when she said, don't touch it, that somehow, even though we don't have an account of it, that's actually accurate. 
she's still, um, she's still after the serpent said, God knows it's going to make you like him and you're not going to die. She still says here. So when verse six, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. The text doesn't present those things as though she was crazy and was thinking stupid things about right, the fruit. Exactly. It actually presents those things as though she saw accurately that it was, it was good for food, tasted great. It was beautiful. It was delightful to the eyes. So we're not talking about like some rotten, you know, fested right. apple or some some worm ridden thing. Like there's no outward element that makes it look bad. It's it was beautiful to lights. the eyes. What was that? It's all green lights up right. to this it's, point. It's right? all green lights, and it was all good things. Exactly. And so that's that's part of why I say like there are some indications in the text. I think. Um, especially based on other things we read about knowledge and, and sacramentalism. And we can get into that at a different point, but there's some reason to think that partaking of this fruit, partaking of the, the outward element that was going to communicate this knowledge of good and evil. There's some good reasons to think that that was part of the sort of eschatology of, of Adam and Eve. We'll get into that in a different episode. But a big reason for that is that all of these things that are identified in the text that Eve saw they're good things. She wanted good, a good thing. The problem is she was not willing to follow God's command and trust God that even though her instinct, her assessment, her judgment of the situation was telling her, this is a good thing. I should do it. God's word said, no, this isn't a good thing. At least in the arrangement of our covenant, this is a bad thing. It's not going to be good for you. It's not going to make you wise. It's not going to nurture you. It's not going to give you nutrition. It's going to cause me to kill you, right? The, the apple didn't kill Adam and Eve. It would have been God right. and it is God and was God who killed Adam and Eve. They trusted their own assessment and the words that were coming from other people, right? First, the, the Satan uh, coming to Eve and then Adam trusting his wife when she said, take and eat this. Um, ironically, take and eat is a, is a very sim, you know, symbolic sacramental thing. Right. Um, they trusted those things more than they trusted God and God's word. And so even though, like I said, the, the physical eating is the outward, the outward sin, the thing we see with our eyes, the outward practice that was sinful, this lack of trusting God's word or this, this trusting other things more than God's word fundamentally is, is the internal motivation that drove that. Maybe I don't, I, I've heard people say it's pride. I'm not even entirely sure that it's pride. It's a lack of, a lack of trust in God, a lack of confidence that God is who he says he is and, and is going to do what he says he is. Um, even to the point where if they actually really believed that God was going to kill them, they wouldn't have eaten it. Like self-preservation is right. a real thing. So not only does there all these good things that Eve was seeing that are held out in the text as actually legitimately good things, but also now all of a sudden she's not trusting that God is even going to be honest to follow through with what he says. So I think those are really important features of the text that a lot of times I think we just gloss over, right? Unless you're in a sermon in like John, John, first John, where he's making the parallel to these things to something that he says in first John, like those three things that Eve saw, we don't, you don't hear a lot about those, but ultimately Adam and Eve trusted their own assessments and the, the assessment of the serpent and, and Adam trusting the assessment of Eve over and against what God had already clearly said to them that they understood. They knew that what God was saying was true. They had that knowledge. They had that special revelation, but they allowed their own assessment to sort of override that. I think that's actually a pretty interesting thought because like you said, most people go straight to like this idea of like pride or like straight out rebellion, which we've talked about. Like in some ways, this is of course, trusting your own insight is rebellion against God and his perfect law and his insight. So because like the Reformed Brotherhood is nothing except or maybe without its own analogies and metaphors, <laughs> let me let me throw one at you because like what you were saying really did resonate with me. And that is, so I'm, I'm partway through this whole series of certifications tests in my own profession. And it's a three-part test and it's massive. And in the second part of this test, the second version or iteration, what they've done is they give you everything you need to know. So they give you this truth, essentially, at least in the way that they want to examine you or test you in it. But then they give you a series of questions often, which are half-truths, and they're enough to flip you around. So you'll get a statement, and I'm going through the practice test, and I'll think to myself, oh my goodness, like that sounds, I think that might be true. Like that sounds partly true. I'm not entirely sure, but like it causes me to question the original text because I remember saying, well, 
or reading rather, this is the, uh, this is the way to, uh, to analyze this. Like, this is the way to like understand how to approach this question. This is the truth of the matter. And somebody will give you something, even that hinges on one word. We'll say like, well, that sounds partly true. And now I'm flipped around on it. Yep. So who do I trust? Do I go with my gut, which says like, I'm pretty sure they said like, don't fall into this. Yeah. Go with this, this massive truth. Or am I like, you know what though? Maybe they're trying to trick me. So like here I say that and what Satan does, like he's exceptional, like exceptional being in like his skill and his intelligence, right. which also goes back to like everything we talked about, about knowing God's word, being steeped in the wisdom and the full counsel of God. So as to push and fight against this very thing, because you must know, because the worst thing I think that Satan can do, which is what he does here is not to, he's never going to give you like blatant falsity, right? right? Because you'd be like, that's absolutely false. Like, yeah. One more thing that I've encountered recently, which apparently and evidently was like another type of test. It's apparently like a test that uh, lawyers undergo. If anybody's listening and has gone through like either law school or has applied for a lawyer, apparently it's a, this is the kind of test you might take when you're applying, applying for a job. And it says like, is this statement true? Is it mostly true? Is it possible it's false? Or is it possible it's partially false? <laughs> which I found like an yeah. obnoxious way to question somebody. But yeah. like, this is getting to like the essential nature of something that has been said in a truth that you live by. Yeah. And I'm far, I'm, I'm really with you on this. Like, I think what we see here is not essentially that even that moment wishes to outwardly rebel, but it's a matter how much she trusts the fact that God said no and don't do this. Versus like a manipulated, derivative, partial version of the truth, which seems correct, coupled with her own observation of the fact that like the fruit seems delicious. And knowing that God wants what is best for us, wants to, of course, give us everything that we need, even nutritionally for our bodies. I mean, can you imagine, right? Being in this situation and being tempted to say, well, everything the snake is saying seems really good. Yeah. And I'm, I'm seeing it with my own eyes that this thing looks delicious. It doesn't look like it's going to harm me. I know that God has given me in this garden all kinds of good things to eat and consume. So when he says, did God really say? I think we underestimate the weight of that question yeah. because we can look back and see like, well, that was a bad choice. I don't think any of us, well, I think uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. None of us would actually do that, that was a horrible like metaphor when it comes to eating. Like, it's, but it's you know like what I'm saying? the like that... of the knowledge of good and evil. Exactly. Like, would any of us do better? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I don't know for sure the answer to that question and we never will. Right. But what we do know is that whatever happened and, and we'll talk about like how sin is transmitted down. That's coming up in a couple episodes, but whatever it is, Adam represented us. So whether we actually would have done it or not, the potential for us to do that and the, Adam was not an unfaithful representative of us. That's yeah, the key right, point. We'll, right. we'll, we'll parse all that out. But the other thing that I think is really interesting is to kind of move, pivot into what actually happens now that Eve has sinned and Adam has sinned. Um, it says in um, verse seven, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And I think it's funny because one of the things that she um, she saw that the fruit was good for the translation here in the ESV, and I, this is the common translation. I've never seen it translated another way. The tree was desired to make one wise. What's interesting, you know, most languages have different words that kind of get at different concepts of wisdom. The word that's used here is sakal. S-K-L is the, the English equivalence of the Hebrew consonants. And particularly, this is a, uh, a wisdom that is the result of careful observation, right? So it's funny. It's just, maybe it's just me, but I think it's really funny that like the wisdom that she thought this was going to give her the first thing that they realized like, Oh, I'm not wearing any clothes. It's like exactly. all of a sudden they have this, this wisdom, this observational wisdom that they did seem in some senses, they seemed to lack before they eat the fruit. So there are, there are, we won't get into all of these details mostly because I, I would need to study more and parse them out more. That's just one that I knew about that comes to my mind. But each one of these things that Eve, um, Eve sees in the fruit as a good thing. It's kind of like the monkey's paw, careful right. what you wish for kind of a scenario. Cause each one of these things somewhere in the text in the next couple sequences, Something that's ironically ironic of the text 
they get exactly what they ask for, right? It's delight to the eyes. Well, what do they do with these fruits? The first thing they do, there's, there's a reason that it's a fig leaf is because you're right that this fruit they ate was probably some sort of fig or whatever. Well, they take what's delightful to the eyes and they try to make these makeshift coverings for their bodies, right? What, what's, um, desire to make one observationally wise. Well, the first thing that happens is they use their now astute powers of observation to realize they don't have any clothes on and that they're ashamed. So, so this is what sin does, right? This is now, not only is this the prototypical sin in that it's the first sin, but it's also the same pattern we see with the, every other sin. It promises something delightful exactly. and pleasurable that usually in itself is actually not a bad thing, right? Where we see something we want and we want it usually for good reasons. It's usually a good natural desire that our corrupt sinful nature latches onto and corrupts that good natural desire. It's pretty rare for most people to just have straight up evil desires that are, are evil to the core. There's nothing good or natural about the desires, but it takes those natural desires and it corrupts them. And it holds out this promise. Sin holds out this promise of I'm going to fulfill this natural desire right. of yours. And then when you actually get it, it's actually this, this sort of like corrupt poison version of it. Right. Guys, guys in particular, but not just guys, right. All humans have desire for sexual intimacy, which God created as a blessing for mankind, for the, the enjoyment of spouses to draw them closer to each other, to create children, to protect each other from, um, from lusts, all these different things. Well, sin, sin holds out all over the internet, all over TV. Sin holds out this idea right. where you can get you can get the best part of that without any of the difficult parts, without any of the commitment. But then when people take hold of it, it just is ruin and destruction. Um, you could do that with anything, right? Oh, I see this really great food. I, I love sweets. Right. I love sugary donuts. So boom, you've got diabetes, right? Like there's all of these things <laughs> that happen that have these consequences. I don't have the passage in front of me, but sin, sin seems pleasurable for a season, yes. but in the end leads to death. Sounds like a proverb. It's in Proverbs, right? Yes. Sounds like a proverb. Um, that's really, really key. And it's a, it's a feature of this text. This is part of why, to be fair to some of the German liberals that I bashed on earlier, these kinds of features of the text are part of the reason why people look at this and go, this sounds very fairy tale. Like this seems very fairy tale. It's got these elements, but again, like this is a true story that was told in a way and the words were chosen in a way to communicate things. And a lot of times that does give things kind of a sort of a fairy tale quality to it. We're not acknowledging in any sense that this is not a historical account, but this text has a lot of explanatory power and it, 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 all of the elements that happened during the fall, not only because what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks about the transmission of sin and corruption of sin, not only because that's true. So we actually experience the real actual consequences of what happened here, but because this is just the way that sin works, right it on. works its way in. It looks like it's going to be great. And then it just sucks. That's, I mean, that's really how it boils yes. down. It just sucks. Yes. That's, that's right on. Like I, what you're saying is, is really important. I think for people to grasp because we would expect this to almost sound fairy tale-ish because fairy tales bring a transcendent or omniscient power over the narrative. So even with what you just said, like think of how weird this is that, and like you said, when Adam and Eve consume the fruit, they, their realization that they're naked is intimately associated with shame. That's what right. three seven says, right? So that's like a weird transcendent knowledge in small part that they get automatically. So like when it talks about you know, like the coverings of the fig leaves. Like, why is it that they don't cover their mouths? Why is it like they go right to the bathing suit right. parts? Yeah. Like that, that is like a unique, why is it? Because it's transcendent knowledge because like right. it comes from the outside. And so like, they don't know why exactly they know that because they do now. And they know that there's something about that that is strange to them, that makes them feel estranged, even in their own bodies, that they, as people who are intimate with one another, no longer want to have that part of who they are in their physical outworkings exposed, which is why, like, when you have, like, a nightmare, you know, like, people nowadays, like, because of sin, are, like, intimately familiar with when they are not naked. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you're, yeah. you're never like, am I naked now? Like, your normative <laughs> position is to be clothed. It yeah. is like to understand that. So like so many nightmares are about like, you know, standing, like being in like, I don't know, like your high school homeroom and suddenly being naked. Like that's a great right. 
fear because there's a shame associated with that. And that we should ask, why is that? Because of this like transcendent, otherworldly outside, like we recognize it's a weird thing that we should feel that way. And so here we have, again, like Adam and Eve coming under this. It makes complete sense that the narrative would take us in this direction. It makes complete yeah. sense that even like their physical well-being, the way in which they present themselves to the outside world among themselves and, among, and to God, that there would be something that in sin would promise, but would underdeliver. It all promise sin like always promises to like outperform. And of course it always underperforms. Yeah. And worse than that, it always punishes you yeah. as a cancer. Like it always comes at you. It always destroys things. So you're right. Like whether it is sex or exercise or ham, my wife is cook- cooking a ham right now, which I smell, <laughs> which is why maybe that came to me. This is idea that like something yeah. else can replace God in fulfillment or satisfaction or righteousness, or beauty. Right. All of this is, again, like just this massive like sense of like estrangement and shame. So I don't find, like the, the more I study this, and the kinder God is to me to help me to understand and I think perceive what's going on in this text by w- virtue of the fact that, again, this is like a narrative account, I find everything lines up perfectly. Because in saying like there's all these parts where we're like, this seems so otherworldly. I think, why wouldn't it be? Because here we have human beings being given some kind of insight that yeah. they never really were supposed to have because entrusting uh, that to God, it was the best possible thing. Yeah. So by sinning, by eating this fruit, which is it, just an act of disobedience, like, couldn't we say, like, you could pick anything? Like, don't come across this line. Don't go yeah. into this area. Don't say this word. Don't pick up this animal. Don't look at that thing. It wouldn't matter what it was. Right. What God was trying to emphasize is, as you said, do you have faith in me as the giver of all good gifts and as the one who properly defines boundaries, no matter what they are? So like whether we push this forward into all of the the laws that Israel has given, which many of which I'm convinced, you know, some of the ceremonial things are really just a way to separate God's people. Right. And they're not necessarily bad things. Like presumably you eat bacon. I eat bacon. I'm like going to probably still, eat ham today, and so are you, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm definitely about to run a train on some ham, but hopefully not in an inappropriate way that <laughs> emphasizes my sinfulness. But to the point of like, I like what you said at the beginning, like God chose this thing. Even if the, if it's like the right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing, that is God's prerogative. And what he's doing is trying to suss out or at least emphasize, are we willing to put our faith in him completely? And yeah. in many ways, he still does this thing, right? Yeah. But what we have here is like this massive failure to uh, trust him in that way from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Before we move on, I just want to share a funny little story about ham. Is that okay with you, Jesse? Yeah, of course. Let's do so it. So I used to have this coworker uh, who would try to tell me funny jokes that he thought were going to be mildly offensive to me. Okay. And one one Monday after Easter Sunday, he came in and he said, why why do Christians eat ham on Easter Sunday? And I was like, I, I don't know. I really don't know. And he goes, it's to celebrate that you're not Jewish. And I, I kind of chuckled and I was like, all right, well, are you ready for me to turn this into a theology lesson? Because boom, actually, that's probably not that far off. I don't think that's why ham is the selected dish for this this celebration. But anyway, I, I think it's, it's a good time. We're going to do this last part kind of quickly just for the sake of uh, our runtime. And I know Jesse and I both have places we want to go today and, and things because of the, the holiday, quote unquote holiday that it is. Um, I want to talk through the immediate after effects of the fall. Yes. Um, I'm going to skip the curses because we'll talk about those next week when we talk about kind of the corruption and the ongoing guilt of sin. But the the very first thing that happens, and I think this is, again, I think I made this point when I was preaching last week, um, particularly in, in my context, it was about like the danger of Easter pageants because it gives us these ideas about the text that aren't really in the text. Right. And the, the example I was using is like, you think of the triumphal entry and you think it's like the procession when like a football right. game where like, there's like 10 or 15 people lined up beside Jesus and they're all like cheering for him. But in reality, it's like this huge, massive crowd of probably like thousands and thousands of people. I think this text has some of the same things, right? Because of the way it gets translated into English, probably not so much because we see a lot of storybooks about this, but the language uh, in verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man mm-hmm. and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There's a couple things here that need to be understood for us to really understand this text. The first thing is, is 
I often hear this text explained as like, this is just God's ordinary pattern. He's, he's in the garden. The cool of the day is like, means he's like, he usually comes and hangs out in the, like the early afternoon or like maybe the early evening. And it's like, God was just doing what God always does. And now all of a sudden there's something different. I understand how people get to that. And I don't think it's like a, like a dramatically erroneous interpretation. I'm not like, I don't think like people who would think that that's what it means are stupid or are doing exegesis wrong. I just don't think it actually squares up with the language of the text or actually what the text is trying to accomplish here. So the language is they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the Ruach of the day. Now that's a Hebrew word that most people are probably familiar with, right? When it says in the cool of the day, literally it's the Lord God walking in the garden in the spirit of the day or in the, the spirit of that day. Now we should, we should remember this text is not being recorded in real time. It's not like Moses had a time machine and was back there and he was like writing down. This is a theological, an inspired theological reflection on an account that God was sharing with Moses to be shared with the people for a specific purpose. And one of the features of this text, we actually learn about the eschatology, the originally intended eschatology of Adam from this text. Right. right? The, the last part of the text where it talks about how God expelled him from the garden so that he wouldn't eat of the tree of life so that he wouldn't live forever in kind of this sin, sinful state. We learn about that eschatology, not in the account of Adam's blessed existence before the fall, but in the consequences of Adam's fall. So we should read this here, this whole section, starting in verse eight, down through the end of the chapter, we should understand this in an eschatological light. And so I think that it's a better way to understand this text, to see this as God coming in judgment in like the prototypical day of the Lord. This is yes. the first the first example of God's judgment in the day of the Lord, right? When it says the spirit of that day. It's not not like that day like that that Saturday afternoon when this happened. It's the spirit of that day, of that day of the Lord, the day that will come in the future. It's that kind of coming of the Lord. And the word for walking, this is a lot more like Hebrew exegesis than I intended to do, but that word for walking is most commonly when it's referring to God, most commonly referring to God coming and being with his people in a special way. It's a right. special presence of the Lord. And then it, we know that this is the case because it says then here in verse eight, it says they hid from the presence of the Lord God. Right it's on. not just that they hid from the Lord God. I mean, that we can we can get a little overly overly charismatic if we draw a firm distinction between like the presence of the Lord and like the God, and God Himself. Like we can get weird about it, but the text is drawing that it's not just God; it's the presence of the Lord that that they're hiding from. So whether or not God had come in the garden and been present with them, and you know, previously, I don't I don't know. The text is not super clear to me. I think there's good reasons to think that God had been around in the garden and there'd been this special kind of theophonic Christophonic relationship where Christ was present almost in a bodily form with them at times. This text is specifically saying that now when God comes, it's different. We shouldn't picture this as like the nice cool evening. There's like a gentle breeze and like the crickets are chirping and the leaves are like, this is the, this is the rushing wind that, uh, that Elijah heard that tore apart, apart the site of Mount Horeb when he was camping out there, right? This is the, the sound of wind that comes that, uh, brings the waters crashing back down on the Egyptians in the sea of reeds or the red sea. This is a judgment narrative. And we should, I'm going to spend all of our time now that we have left on this. We should understand this as a judgment narrative, not just a particular historical judgment narrative, but as the archetypal prototypal judgment narrative that all judgment narratives, all judgment accounts that come through the rest of the Bible follow. Every time that God comes in judgment, whether it's a, a prophetic vision, whether it's the book of Job at the end of Job, whether it's what we see in the book of Revelation, even things like um, when he comes on Mount Sinai, it's still a judgment. All of those are patterned after this. And it's not because of some you know linguistic German liberalism, higher form criticism thing. It's because this is how God comes in judgment. He comes with wind. He comes with noise. He comes suddenly. All of those things are here in the text. So we shouldn't see this as like Adam and Eve just... 
they, they just reacted to God differently. This is God coming in a way that he had not come before. Even if he had come in the right. garden before, it was not the same as this. And I think that is super key from a historical perspective, because again, we think in terms of like storybook Bibles, where like, this is actually still like a rather pleasant exchange where like God comes and he's like kind of right. wagging his finger at Adam and Eve. That is not at all what's happening. This is a judgment theophany. And Adam and Eve were right to try to hide themselves, right? This is this is the natural response to God in judgment is to try to hide yourselves because just like in Revelation, the people cry for the mountains to fall on them because it'd be better to be hidden from the presence of the Lord than to suffer in the presence of the Lord without a mediator. That's what this text needs to understand is we have to get that to get how serious and grave sin actually is. Right. I've heard some theologians like speculate that, like you said, this weird, in my opinion, unnecessary, like prescriptive and regimented idea that like God shows up on the Sabbath day and he comes yeah. and hangs out as if like he has a schedule. Like here, I'm going to, I'll stop by at like three o'clock. Is that good for yeah. you guys? And so like they were expecting him and they're like, oh man, this is totally different. We right. did some bad stuff yeah. and God's going to show up and we, I, is he coming? Do you hear him? Yeah. But this initial rebellious act brings divine justice. Right. I think that's what we forget. So like, when, when Paul says that God is just and justifier, that means that like when he comes in the judgment, he always comes in the judgment. Right. So here he shows up and the consequences of man's sin are fitting and they're devastating. And I think, like you said, the hinge or the linchpin of this is that they respond to him now in fear. So right. when I read this, like you're saying, when it talks about them like hearing him in the garden, I, I'm not anticipating like they're like looking at their... I don't know, like creation watches or whatever, and being right. like, "Is it three p.m.? Is it yeah. two p.m.? Like, it's, it's not like the kid up? who forgot to close his, clean his room and knows dad's going to be home yes. at five, and like here's the garage yes. door. It's not like that. Yes, but even like the way it's written, even in English, is and then they heard the sound right. of the Lord walking in right. the garden, and this idea of like him being ushered in, and it's almost like, oh man, it is go time. Like right. God is here. And I'm afraid of him now. I fear him not out of like holy dread or respect, but the fact that I know I've sinned against right. him. I've broken this covenant. And he has he has come now to bring retribution and judgment for the thing which I have done, which is to actively fight against my relationship with him. So like even the Lord God calling out at them saying, Where are you? And you know, Adam says, like, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, which is even almost a weird way to say that. Like I heard the sound of the of the of you in the place where I am right, right. now. Because I was naked. And God says, like, who told you you were naked? Like, even that is a question of judgment, right? Who right. was it that alerted you to the fact? And basically, I must say, it was me. Right. Like, I was the one. It wasn't yeah. like somebody else told me, like the serpent said, hey, by the way, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to eat this thing. And then you're suddenly going to be like, you know what we would like right now? Bathing suits. Right. Fig like that, that's not the thing. It's, it's actually Adam himself yeah. who in a way, in a, this weird perverse way, has told him that he is in fact naked. So I'm totally with you. Like whether it's this story or often we, I've you heard me say this before, like with Noah's Ark, like this idea that some of we've like puritized and like distilled yeah. these down and like cute children's stories, you know, like, it's like, I mean, would you say like, if you look at like, and I'm not trying to like just put children's Bibles on blast. But, you know, like you see like a children's Bible account and there's Adam and Eve and they're wearing the fig leaves and they're right. kind of like, oh no, like yeah. this is really bad. And there's the angel with the sword. It's almost like a, this is suboptimal. It's not right. that. And, and even like we see the gracious of God who when he brings this divine justice, which is necessary yeah. and warranted and totally appropriate, that he himself covers his people to begin with. And we're waiting from that day forward to like the divine, yeah. the ultimate covering that would bring redemption so that we might have a purity before God again and not be in this substandard of having to be before him and to continually offer sacrifice and to be underneath yeah. the weight of our guilt and our sin, but that God brings that cleansing and that purity and that sacrifice and we cannot provide it for ourselves. You're right. In the very beginning here, from the very instant of where sin enters the world, which is outside God's, you know, like, you know, original creation, here we find that he makes a way. He always makes a way. Yeah. But that way is him being the just and the justifier. Right. That his judgment cannot just be wiped away by him saying, like, you know what? It's all good. Don't worry about it. Like, that's you. Yeah, it's on you. And that was a bad thing you did. But you know what? Let's just do a mulligan. There are no mulligans with God. Everything is paid for. And so here there must be a payment due, but we tend to like, just kind of like move beyond that payment really quickly and say like, yeah, like he kicks him out and there's a curse. Yeah. It's so much more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, um, for all of the reasons we've talked about, we picture this like 
Adam and Eve are hiding themselves like a kid hides themselves like in the closet when dad gets home and they haven't cleaned the room. Yes. Because he's going to be upset with him and like, gonna dude, let's give him a little while to cool down or like maybe, maybe if he has to find me, he'll, he won't be as mad about the closet. No, no, no. Adam and Eve hid themselves because they were sure that God was going to slaughter them. Where yeah. Right. Like this, this is not, again, I understand why certain scholars and other people get to the point of saying like, well, this is God's regular pattern and the response is what's different. I don't think that's what's going on in the text. Agreed. God immediately in, in the, all of the anthropomorphic sense that we've talked about in the theology proper series, but this is a response from God and it's an immediate response from God. It's not as though God deliberates for a long period of time. There's obviously some period of time because there's time for them to make fig leaves. Although it could be that they were eating figs and right. they just grabbed some right. leaves and like exactly. covered up over their private parts. Um, although it says they sewed fig leaves together. So there was some time. That's not the point. This isn't like God <laughs> waited until the next day he was going to be there. He he immediately came to the garden in judgment, in this calamitous rushing sound. This is the same scene where, think of it this way. In Job, in the end of Job, God comes in a whirlwind and he says, prepare yourself like a man for I'm about to examine you. That's what happened here. God comes right. in the whirlwind and he examines them. This is not, um, this isn't like 20 questions. I mean, some of these, we'll talk about it next week. Some of these questions and the way the judgment is executed is actually gracious. God is showing grace to Adam and Eve by the fact that he didn't just slaughter them when they, where they stood. Right. But this is not a friendly game of 20 questions. God isn't actually trying to gather information. This is a, this is a prosecutorial cross-examination right? This is Adam and Eve on the stand and God is grilling them. Where are you? Who told you to hide from me? Who told you you were naked? What is this thing that you have done? Like these are, these are accusatory questions. Heavy. And they're instructive to Adam and Eve because they demonstrate God's displeasure. But I want to just, before we wrap up, I'm going to skip over the curses because we'll talk about them this next week. And I'll, we'll talk more about this next week, but I want to make sure we cover the last part of this because it's really, really important. God now is faced with a decision, quote unquote. Obviously, this is all ordained before the, the beginning of time from you know eternity past. But God is faced with a decision in the text of kind of what to do with these people now. And so he he makes the decision to expel them out of the garden. And again, this is a punishment, but it's kind of a weird, gracious punishment. And there's a lot more that goes into this, but one of the things that a lot of Christian scholars, especially in the early church, comment on is that had Adam and Eve taken of the tree of life and eaten of it, um, again, we'll talk about sacramentology when we get there, but had they partaken of this sacrament of the tree of life, and I think we have good reasons to think that they had not yet had eaten of the tree of life. I don't think they were in the garden for very long. I think they were in the garden for like a week or two, like a couple weeks at the, at the most. I think I think this happened on the first Sabbath, but I'll, we'll, we'll talk about that at a different time. God does not just punish them by kicking them out of the garden. The punishment mostly comes in the form of these curses. Right. Kicking them out of the garden and barring their way to the fruit, uh, to the tree of life is actually a very gracious thing. Because as the text said, if they had reached out their hand and taken of the tree of life, they would have eaten forever or they would have lived forever. That's what God is preventing. Uh, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Right. So this is not saying that suddenly that reward or that whatever, however, that eternal life was or immortal life, immortal life was communicated to them through the tree <laughs> of life. It would have been communicated to them even had they eaten in their now their state of sinfulness. Right. So it was a gracious thing for God to kick them out of the garden, to forbid them from that tree by barring the way so that in the proper time with his proper plan of restoration, we could then see at the end of Revelation, exactly. the tree of life is still the goal. It's still the aim. It's still the end. Right. But there has to be things done. We have to be prepared and repaired and regenerated and restored to a place where we can now then take part in that and not be confirmed in this corrupt fallen state, but be confirmed in a permanent, immutably righteous state. Right so 
just wanted to get that out there because it's one of the things that happens with these texts is if you focus too much on the nitty gritty of it, you lose the gospel. And we'll we'll talk about maybe we'll have a, a fifth part of this little harmatology series of like the gospel in the fall. But like the gospel is all over this text, starting by the fact that they don't drop dead the second that those that exactly. you know that fig or whatever it is touches their lips. Right. The fact that God even comes to examine them and doesn't just condemn them to hell immediately, instantly, is already a gracious act. Even if he had then eventually condemned them to hell, it still was gracious. That's common grace there. So that that's a whole different can of worms that we'll, we'll unpack over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I feel like you just keep constantly introducing topics that you want I know, I me. can't stop. You're, yeah, like you're baiting me into like, let's make this episode like six or seven hours know, long because there's I so much stop. more we could say. But like the, the one thing I'll just add, add along to that side of that is yes, Everywhere you find the gospel, and the gospel is like the benevolent distance of God, the forbearance of God, the kindliness of God to make a way and to provide the ultimate sacrifice, the thing that we actually needed but thought we were trying to do for ourselves. So even I even see that like in this, you made a good point, in this time between the, let's again, this is a narrative, the little con- literal consumption of the fruit, and then whatever seamstress work they're able to do to make the fig leaf bathing suits, right. even there, right? Like there's a kindness yeah. of God because like what he's essentially doing, at least I would like to think is that in allowing them to try to, for their own way, cover themselves, he's emphasizing that this thing is inadequate, right? that that what you're trying to do yeah. to somehow make amends, to show... And to somehow make yourself less shameful before me is inadequate. Yeah. And of course, he provides his own substitute in this very instance, you know, very literally, which is the, you know, like the clothing of like the skins that itself, like you couldn't we do like a whole episode just that and yeah. like the amazing and I'm sure kindness we will of God. At some point. <laughs> yeah, probably we will because yeah. we've we've got so many more to go. We're coming for you. We're coming for you. Um, Genesis three. Yes. Yeah. Ex- exactly. <laughs> So yeah, I'd, I'd like to say like, even though we introduced lots of potential episodes that might be like future paths or like future, may I say variants? Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jesse is dabbling in the MCU folks. Just, he's just learning. He said today and the, this is just another reason to join the telegram channel. I've discovered now that almost everything that Jesse knows about the Marvel cinematic universe is a result of memes that I have made, which I don't correct. think is true between memes I've made and walking through the living room when his wife is watching Marvel movies, I that's think that's correct. the extent of Jesse's Marvel knowledge. Yeah, that's that's very true. Another reason to get in the Telegram and have some yeah. fun chatting with us. So I would say, until next time, Tony, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs> <laughs>